Welcome to episode 26 of Larry Dowdy Mike's Side. Dr. Bob Denton, political analyst, professor, director of School of Communication, and the W. Thomas Rice Chair, Pamplin College of Business of Virginia Tech, our guest. Dr. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Oh, gosh, it's always a pleasure to join you and to be with you. We're going to get to politics in a bit. How did you wind up at Virginia Tech? Well, you know, um, I'm a hillbilly from Boone, North Carolina. I was stuck in the Midwest, uh, went to Purdue for my doctorate, and uh, after military service uh, outside of Chicago, where I worked in advertising and did a little political stuff, as you can imagine, as part of the agency, I took a $30,000 loan out of the house uh, and uh, started a, a, an ad agency in Rockville, Illinois. But I wanted to get back closer to this uh, area, and I've continued, uh, you know, return uh, closer to home, and I love the mountains. I'm a hillbilly to all through and through. And um, and there I was in 1988. There was an opening to be head of the Department of Communication, and I was 34 years old. I thought, well, okay, let me just go and see. I, they're not brave enough to hire me at 34 years old and the head of a department. Well, they were silly enough, and so um, it provided an opportunity. And uh, by pedigree, I'm a demon deacon and a boiler maker, but I certainly, by choice, have become a hokey. Uh, Virginia Tech has been fabulous and very good to me. Um, get calls and headhunters all the time, uh, even still now. It's like, do you people realize how old I am? Virginia Tech has been home, and it's wonderful. But um, I'm knocking on the door of 70, and it's time for someone else to grab the reins and, and take it forward. So, obviously, things have changed a lot. I, I know when you and I first started talking, we were talking about the Department of Communication at Virginia Tech. Now it's known as the School of Communication. Tell us about that. I mean, do you see media staying where they are today, sometimes opinionated, or will we get back to reporting the story and let the listener or viewer decide? Well, that's, um, I really think, within the school, of course, we have five majors, everything from public relations to advertising um, to communication um, studies, which is from a management kind of perspective, multimedia uh, journalism and sports media and analytics and what have you. But I think in terms of journalism itself, uh, frankly, it's in a stage of crisis right now. Uh, it's very partisan, uh, just like the, in polarizing, just like um, the public is. The model and financing of journalism um, has become very much an issue in terms of even controlling free speech. And so this is going to take some courts to decide some of those issues. It's going to take, I don't know what, for journalism to go back where it was, where you could afford people to have in-depth, um, where you can provide information um, and not have it be conclusions. Um, as you know, since 1992, I've edited a, a volume on every election, and, uh, and the one that's coming out, I, I really focused on the media and how it covered the election, and it's very partisan, it's divide. Uh, and rather than giving information, so for example, when we talk about, oh my gosh, voter fraud, voter integrity, they say, well, that's just, you know, the fake lie and all that. Well, wait a minute, what, what does integrity mean? On a scale of one to 10, from 
no verification to IDs, where are you the most comfortable? I'm up there needing, yes, I want a valid ID. It's insulting to tell someone that they can't have a <laughs> have an ID. You show an ID to do about everything else. So I need to be at that seven or eight. But the journalism didn't define what is fraud. What are the types of fraud? What's the danger with ballot harvesting? In other words, we have the information to be able to make a decision, as you say, to to provide information in form instead of providing conclusion. And so I, 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 forgive me for going on and on, but I do think journalism as it's practiced today is in crisis in terms of the economic and support aspect of it in the future. And also in terms of just the, uh, does it serve the democracy in terms of what we need as a citizenry to make good decisions. And so I'm, I'm afraid that even though I'm director of a school and most of our majors are in multimedia journalism, sports media and analytics, um, I worry about the practice of journalism today. I, I get it. You know, and you talk about voter ID. You know, I, I think, it, honestly, I mean, that, that would be like um, not getting a driver's license and you get stopped by a police officer and you tell them, well, I, I didn't need one. I didn't need a driver's license. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's some of the, the rationale. It's just, it, it's, I'm frustrated because even you, you, you can't really talk about it without people looking at you like, oh, you're one of those. Um, and and um, your conspiracy theory, um, of course, there's not enough votes to change the election. Well, there's election fraud every election, the magnitude. And I like the word integrity rather than fraud, because integrity means, again, how comfortable am I with the process? This ballot harvesting, how in the world would anybody in the right mind would be supportive and trusting of ballot harvesting? I, I just, and they say, well, wait a minute, then shut-ins, if you can't go there and get it, you can because there's, there's validation in terms of seeing the signature right there and then matching it with the rolls and what have you. So this notion of if they understand the process, we certainly can address issues of integrity without it being lack of access to the ballot. And so it's just, you know, there's a reason that we have switches, which is easy, left, right, up, down. We need to get back where we have knobs because things are nuanced where, okay, a little bit more information, um, of all the free access where if you have the mirror test, which you breathe into the mirror fogs, okay, that's you can vote. And you can vote now, right now in July, for next fall uh, elections. I mean, yeah, go ahead and vote now. Uh, don't even witness a campaign. Go from that ridiculous all the way to where it would be only in person, only between the hours of 7 and 9. And so, but there's a lot of room in between those two ends. So we need to somewhat have rational conversations. But the environment is such, and so polarized in one way or one view or the other, it's really hard to have discussions and, and, and really come in what you and I would call common sense. Yeah, and you know, there could indeed be seven John Doe's, but it prove 
where they are, where they exist, and where they live. If that's the case, then that's fine. But just don't take their word for it. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, and look, you know, I mean, dead people do vote every election. I mean, yes, it is absolutely true. I mean, you can, you can Google that. I mean, it's easy. So the the whole notion of keeping a good voter roll um, accurate every so often, you need to purge it. I'll tell you something that opened my eyes when Barack Obama was elected president, which I teach a Tuesday, Thursday class at that point, 180 students in there. Um, and there on that Thursday, um, some of the students, of course, they were, they were so elated and delighted. And I had several of them that were bragging. They voted twice. Uh, they voted absentee from home, but also voted right here. And they were laughing and just saying, you know, this was great. And we made, and I said, wait a minute, you realize that I could go to jail because you just confessed to a felony. You committed a felony. And if I do my civic duty, I'm supposed to report you to the authorities. Well, you can imagine kind of the reactions there and what have you. But that told me how easy it was. And it wasn't just one student. It was probably about, it was about a dozen or so actually claimed. And so that was one of those moments for me, like, oh, my goodness, um, what does that mean? What are the implications? And so I think the issue of voter integrity, broadly defined, I'm not using the word fraud, but voter integrity is an important issue for us to feel comfortable with. Yeah, I I, I agree with you 100 percent. So, Dr. Bob, uh, is it the news organizations that are not being held accountable, or the news organizations are kind of let let's stretch the truth just a little bit. Let's give it just a little twist, and we're we're close to one hundred percent, but not quite. And it's all about the ratings. It's about ratings, which means it's all about the audience. You know, it used to be if you had three networks, okay, and you could have, quote, mass communication. Now, because of uh, social media, web, everything, we can tailor to the audience. I can slice and dice. And so instead of having a horizontal audience, it becomes very vertical. If I have an ideological perspective, I'm only going to attune to those sites that reinforce my existing belief, attitudes, and values. And I've got to have the audience or I cannot survive. And some cannot survive, even if getting so narrow. But whatever it is on that rainbow, in that spectrum, I've got to meet my audience needs. And through survey and polling, I can tell you who my audience is. And we see it, whether it's Fox, whether it's MSNBC, whether it's even CBS, which is going much more, if you look at their stories in terms of, approaching women. Um, I, it was sensitized to me when I was at my former station, WSLS, <laughs> um, when the new owners came in and they did the big survey and gosh, thank goodness I tested well, but they did who was watching Well, it wasn't men, it was the women. So they added more education stuff. They cut sports in half in terms of the time allocation. In other words, it is conscious decision-making because we got to keep 
our audience. And then that puts us in echo chambers where I'm associating with only those of like belief attitudes and values. And the tighter the box, I can see beyond. And it gets more narrow and narrow. And that's why the economic situation is driving this polarized, partisan kind of media that we see. And the third thing that is, there's so many of these websites that look like they're news. They're sponsored by public relation firms. So the auto industry hires this public relations firm to come up with free and independent living website. And the articles in there are about not just cars, but about the freedom of open road spacing, the traveling, the, the whatever. It can also be about single issue politics, freedom as it relates to speech, the constitution, these laws. It could be about right to life and what does that mean? And so some of the websites that we think is actually news, if you look at who owns them and what have you, it's not officially news organizations at all. It's public relations firms who've established them on part of a client or part of an industry arm. And we don't know, sitting here, the difference of some of those sites you go to. Daily Signal is one that a lot of conservatives perhaps see. And that's not really a journalistic news organization. It's an aggregate, an aggregator, and some of its original content, but it is from a certain perspective. So we really are in a very confusing environment, and I try not to become cynical, but I am very alarmed about the future of our democracy if we don't have access to information that we can trust and a wide range of it so that we can think critically and make good decisions as we go forward. Dr. Bob Denton, what do you hear back from professors? I know you mentioned WSLS. John Carlin has uh, done a course or two there at uh, Virginia Tech. Robin Reed, of course, you got Bill Roth on board and many others. What feedback do you hear from them as far as the students that are coming into their classes? Okay, I'm going to get in trouble. Oh, um, uh-oh. And that's nothing new, you know. As I say in terms of my wonderful sweet wife, I've only been in the doghouse once, but I never got out, you know. So anyway, um, one of the real concerns is um, that what is your motive going into the field? Is it to have a pretty face on camera? Are you willing to start in a lower market move up? Are you willing to learn the basics of telling a story and doing it right. It takes work. It's not just a stimulus response. And so much of that mentoring, much of that teaching is the real principles of the journalistic process. And we're very good at that. And matter of fact, our students find jobs. Less and less of our multimedia journalism, it's now sports media and analytics. We had over 800 applications. For a program that's only two years old, Bill Roth is the anchor of it. We're hiring another uh, asset in that particular sports area specifically. We also have a sports social media uh, um, academic on, on staff as well. 800 applications for 50 slots. For 50 slots. It is more difficult 
to get to because there's an allocation for each of the majors. It was more competitive to get into sports media and analytics than it was over half of the engineering departments this coming fall. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what does. But fewer students are attracted to traditional journalism. They want entertainment. They want um, um, music. They want sports. If they go into gaming now, it's not just football and basketball, but it's all of the different ones because, as you know, the ACC and all the different uh, net, uh, networks like that, they have to have content, everything from twiddly uh, links to, to uh, lacrosse to soccer, in addition to football and basketball. And so really there's jobs out there, but right now the hottest thing is what we're finding is toward entertainment media and certainly across platforms and sports media. But in terms of the feedback, it's about teaching them the discipline of what are the essentials to doing, quote, news, whether it's sports, whether it's the environment, whether you're going to do um, finance. And that's why we require all of our majors to have a minor. I double majored because I love political science and what have you. I also had mass communication degree. Um, so we can get you competent as a student and graduate in terms of telling a story correctly across platforms. But what do you want to communicate about? And that's why we have minors, everything from history and international studies to finance to business, because that's what they all want to communicate about. So don't forgive me for being long-winded, but that kind of gives a perspective there of what we try to do. But once they leave... Wow. What's the industry doing? Yeah. You know, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, they can get it right up until they leave. But if that first job or second job, uh, you know, has a news director or, or an executive producer who wants them to go in a different direction, they either do or they don't. Yes. And if you want to work, and of course, when you start out, I mean... It's not great pay. It takes about eight years or so to kind of catch up with your uh, contemporaries. Um, and so you are really, when you enter these fields, the entry level is not, um, in many cases, is not as much as a, a, a school teacher, per se, depending upon your market. But here's the other thing that's happening, and I have to keep reminding myself, especially from a political perspective. We're seeing a realignment in the parties, but we're also seeing a generational shift. The millennials now are the largest single voting bloc in America. I assure you that Generation Z is very different. Highly motivated, activated, very much to the left. Not so much Democrat, but liberal left. If you want to use the word progressive, that's fine. But they, in terms of their belief, attitudes, and values, are very, very different. And they are very much object-oriented. We will have green energy. We will have universal this, that, and the other. And so what is something that we're seeing is this tsunami of a generational change. Now, that happens all the time. We had the silent generation, us baby boomers. Are getting older, we're retiring, we're stepping aside. Millennials, the early millennials are kind of moving a little bit 
closer to center left. Um, but Generation Z, oh my gosh. I mean, you know, they're just uh, way too what we would call um, very much egalitarian. The whole word equity, people need to understand that's not the same as equal. That's become a very political kind of word. Equity means equal in terms of outcomes, not to have anything to do with opportunity. Everyone deserves universal pay. Everyone deserves, and, uh, and they don't see it as communist or socialist. Um, but anyway, we're now witnessing that generational shift. And for me, I have to keep my awareness on that because that's also simultaneously happening. As a result of that, the newsrooms, yes, EBJ, yes, SLS, yes, all, all of the people that go out and that's coming in degrees, well, you know what they are. They're eight millennials and now the Generation Z. So their DNA also influences what they see, what their interests are, and what they will cover, and what is the perspective. So, Dr. Bob, when I was in school, you know, you were preached— uh, the three branches of government, you know, uh, legislative, executive, and judicial. Is that as much a concern for the up-and-coming Generation Z? No, because, um, and, 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 I'm, and, and I don't want to have too wide of a brush, but even the history it, it is more neutral. In other words, George Washington, well, he was just, quote, a man. He had slaves. Yes, he did a couple of good things, but he's no better, no greater than X or what have you. It's this relativism that you'll see. And the distinction there is the way they will approach the various institutions. But, you know, for how many, a decade or so ago, uh, every late night show did a person in the street and says, Name who's the vice president of the United States. And, you know, three out of seven couldn't tell you. Uh, name one justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, um, seven out of ten couldn't tell one. So our knowledge is very contemporary, um, but not historical. And, of course, as you see now with critical race theory and 1619 Project and all that, what is history now? I mean, there's certain real concerns about what qualifies as history, what should be taught. And for everything that's taught, there's something that's not taught. And that right now we're seeing parents becoming more involved in that battle in terms of curriculum. Now, the battle is already lost at the academic, uh, at the higher ed. I mean, that battle's done. <laughs> It's over. Uh, Dr. Bob Denton is our guest here on Larry Dowdy Mike's Side, the podcast. Uh, Dr. Bob, the Commonwealth is going to elect a new governor in November. What will Governor Northam be remembered for? Will it be his yearbook photo, his comments on Ask the Governor on WTOP back in January of 2019 about abortion? Uh, will it be taking down statues uh, or the way he handled COVID? It will be all of those. Um, he is about, what, between 48 and 52 kind of percent, depending upon the polls in terms of approval. He certainly is going to take credit for the progressive uh, transformation as it relates to the legislative uh, bills. He's been very aggressive in terms of 
his role in terms of social justice, as you would say, and his education as related to race. So there's always be a footnote, just like there is with Bill Clinton, as we know. Uh, there's always going to be that asterisk there, and certainly it will start with the photo of the yearbook and how that has influenced a whole host of his behavior, actions, uh, and legislative uh, initiatives. Um, I think COVID and the economy has to come front and center, but it wasn't necessarily heroic per se. And it is going to be interesting to see what people will point to as his major contribution. Um, if we point fingers and look at across, it's certainly not transportation, it's not education. It would have to be along the lines of, okay, how the economy and actually the state did better than expected in terms of the COVID. And we are among, what, the first 14 or 19 states or whatever that reached the 70% vaccination. Um, so I think in terms of racial aspects in the COVID and the pandemic, will probably dominate uh, a lot of discussion uh, about his uh, governorship. So Terry McAuliffe wants to be governor again. Can his first term win it for him, or can Glenn Youngkin uh, be a real challenge? I think Youngkin can be um, a real challenge, and there, there are several reasons for that. One, he actually is a good uh, campaigner. There will be enough money to be um, competitive. In years non presidential years, if it's a 45 to 50% or so turnout, Republicans certainly um, can benefit. Um, he doesn't have baggage. He is a political outsider. Um, the question for him, obviously, will be, can he keep the Trump supporters, which he desperately will need, and at the same time bring back to the fold married white women, suburban independence that they lost in the other elections. I think he needs to be very focused on Virginia. It's going to be outside money, national attention. It's going to be a down and right in the face campaign. But I, if I was on his staff, would say focus on Virginia. If this race gets nationalized, you're done. And because of so many challenges across the delegate seats, 68 out of 100, I think, or more, then it is about the turnout. If every Republican who self-identifies as a Republican, you still can't win the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so he has to hold the Trump supporters, get substantial in terms of the independents, make inroads in terms of the married white women that were lost. Uh, you realize when Trump lost by 10 points in Virginia, that's the most anyone's lost in Virginia since 1988. Um, so, but I do think that that's a good ticket. It's the most diverse in Republican history. It's balanced. Um, he's doing very good in terms of trying to define himself and the ads that run. Um, Terry McAuliffe doesn't really need to, to run the ads right now, but I think Youngkin is very smart. Don't turn the summer over. Don't let McCullough define him because he's going to try. He's going to start calling Glenn Trump is what he, what McCullough. He's going to find him as much to Trump as he possibly can. 
So yes, I think I think it, it certainly can be. Remember, McAuliffe only won with forty-seven percent of the vote, only two percentage points. Um, he did finish his term being very popular. McAuliffe, of course, will have the money. Um, he's a very good campaigner, um, and but he does have a have a record. The challenge for Terry McAuliffe. What about these twenty seventeen people elected to the to the legislature? How about these younger generational Democrats? Is he going to be forced to move to the left, which I think we're already seeing he's having to do to appease certain parts of their base? So the question from him, and the fact of the matter is, the most recent Christopher Newport University poll shows forty seven percent of Virginians say I'm center left, forty two percent center right. Virginia is not a, quote, big liberal state, despite what we think about the Nova, the Northern Virginia area. So that's a challenge for McCulloch. So the main challenge for McCulloch is, gosh, how center and moderate can I be and stay? For young it's how much can I tiptoe between Trump and yet try to also bring some independence and the return of married white women. Dr. Bob, do you expect to see help for Youngkin from the likes of Trump, Good, Griffith, and Klein? And would the likes of former governors Kane and Warner be of any help to McCullough? For a rah-rah moment, absolutely. Um, I think this, and I think that uh, Youngkin understands this, Republicans historically in Virginia have not. You've got to do the micro-targeting like you've never done before. And that's kind of invisible. It's not counting yard signs because the number of yard signs, that doesn't matter. No, no, now. And that is the messaging strategy. That is absolutely cross-platform. It's drive that social media, that frequency of touch. People like my age, we don't, we don't vote. The over 55 and all, they are less concerned than that micro-targeting, making sure you identify. And I'm talking about at the neighborhood level. And that's the kind of probably a third or so of the budget should be going toward in terms of the advertising. Now, you know this is going to be an $80 million campaign for both of them by the time everything is done. It's going to be the most expensive uh, in the history of the Commonwealth. And I also think it may work in Republicans' favor. There is a context. How is Biden doing? Is inflation so bad? Where are we in the pandemic? Is there another rise? I do think that the context might be a little bit influential um, as you go into the fall. Um, but that also could be somewhat of a factor. So I think that the former governors and what have you, that is more toward the end. Uh, that is about get out the vote efforts. Certainly, um, I think you'll see some big time uh, people who will enter the state. So, yes, I think you'll see a lot of the endorsements because they play to a part of that targeting um, called the transfer effect. Well, I'll tell you, November's going to be here before you know it. I can't wait. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but the, you know, always so many questions. Real quickly, when do you expect uh, a book release this year? Well, the edited book, uh, believe it or not, on the campaign um, is going to be uh, out uh, July 15th. I actually have three volumes on this campaign, and the first volume will be released July 15th. But uh, and it's called the 2020 presidential election: a communication perspective, and um, and so that's uh, 
Thank you for that little plug. But anyway. Well, and I, I guess it'll be uh, available in bookstores and anywhere you buy your books. Uh, yes, of course, now most of it's online. It's Roman and Littlefield, and of course, Amazon and all those places, uh, obviously. Well, well, have it. Matter of fact, they've already got it up and uh, with the cover and everything like that. Um, so, but yes. But thank you. Bless you. <laughs> well, well, I, I tell you, I've got some summer reading, and I'm sure we'll have something else to chat about in a future podcast. Absolutely. And it's always good to uh, put you to sleep, too, and so you don't have to take that sleeping pill. So, anyway. <laughs> I love it. Dr. Bob, thank you so much for letting me just uh, chat with you. I, I could talk to you for hours, but uh, I know our time is, is limited here. But thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, it's always my pleasure. You're very kind, and your audience is very indulgent. So thank you you so much for the opportunity. We appreciate you listening to episode 26 of Larry Dowdy, Mike Side. If you like Mike Side, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to share this podcast with someone you know. There's a new one every other week. I hope you'll be here next time for Larry Dowdy, Mike Side. See you then. <laughs>